Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. And from the Gospel according to John, chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder, Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Uh, We give you thanks and praise uh, for the gift of your word, and we recognize that sometimes uh, we think it's something other than your word when we're confronted, that we hear rumblings that we associate or would prefer with something else, but we pray that you would help us to hear you well this morning. Uh, We pray that You'd help us to hear you well, not just so that we uh, know what to do or so that we have an answer uh, for some question, but so that we might uh, know you better and in knowing you, make you better known in this world. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I remember reading a while back um, about a a change that took place, uh, culturally speaking, uh, sometime over the past couple hundred years. And it's not one of the great revolutions, uh, you know, technological or social that we're we're accustomed to thinking about, but it's not unrelated. And it's the change from travel to tourism. 
Now, at some people, at some point rather, as people began to have more disposable income and transportation became easier and more accessible, we started talking less and less about travelers and more and more about tourists. And, and maybe in the grand scheme of things, this is sort of inconsequential, but, but I, think, I think it is more significant than it first appears. It's not just about language, but about an orientation in the world, right? Travel comes from the word uh, travail, which is like a laborious effort. You know, travel is work, it's, it's commitment. Uh, a, a traveler finds themselves immersed in a place, eats the food, learns some of the language, engages the culture, comes to know the people, and is somehow changed in the process. A traveler can't go home again, as they say, because the experience expands the world. It makes everything different than it was before. A traveler is transformed. Tourism, on the other hand, is not travail. It doesn't make the same demands. A tourist sees a place but doesn't come to know it. Not, not really. A tourist skirts around the edges, samples things, indulges some cultural curiosity, brings home some souvenirs. A tourist is just taking a break from the ordinary. So they don't need to know the language or uh, understand the customs or engage the place. Not really. A, a tourist returns home perhaps with some lovely trinkets and, and a collection of isolated experiences, but it, they aren't really any different than when they, they left. They return home largely unchanged. You know, the last time I, I went anywhere interesting, back in the halcyon days of early 2020, you might recall, my, my family and I went to the Dominican Republic. A and it was excellent, but we were decidedly tourists, right? We flew into the island, we were whisked to a resort that was specially uh, built to, uh, and designed to make it feel like we weren't anywhere in particular. Now, the rooms looked exactly like we expect hotel rooms to look. The dining room served all of our favorite and familiar foods. The only difference was that you could have donuts for breakfast every day if you wanted, which at least one of my sons did. Uh, we never left the resort. You know, I, uh, I, I don't know any more Spanish now than I did when I left, which, or when I arrived there, which is to say not, not very much at all. Um, it was a wonderful holiday, though. It was relaxing and refreshing and lovely, but I can only kind of technically say that I've been to the Dominican Republic. Now, and I'm sure there's a place in this world for travel and tourism, but the point is that they're very different orientations. You know, I, I think about this whenever we come to the, this passage from St. John's Gospel, where, where some Greek folks have arrived in Jerusalem uh, to worship at the festival of Passover. It's a safe bet now that, that anyone who uh, went anywhere in the first century, especially to the sort of far eastern edge of the Roman Empire, uh, traveled, uh, did some travailing to get there. Now, this was probably an undertaking, and they're there to actively participate in the festival. And, and while they're in town, they, they want to see Jesus. Obviously, news of Jesus' ministry has reached them somehow. Uh, as you heard Aaron say, his name is buzzing around the city. He's recently raised a man from the dead, which does get people talking. He, he's been paraded into Jerusalem with the crowd singing that he is the true king of Israel. And these folks want to catch a glimpse of the man himself. They, they want to see what all the fuss is about. And naturally, Philip seems pretty pleased about this, and, and Andrew too. He, he, even the foreigners know Jesus. Uh, Greeks want to meet their rabbi. 
the, things are really starting to heat up here. So they track him down and they, they find Jesus and they let him know the good news. Now, it's not really fair to assume uh, what these Greeks who'd come all this way were thinking when they asked to see Jesus. But the way that John tells it, in, in spite of their traveling to get to Jerusalem, there's something distinctly touristy about this request. Like it's curiosity, not, not commitment that compels them. And while that might be okay on a summer vacation as part of a tourist package, Jesus doesn't seem to be all that interested. You know, instead of trotting off to see the group, I imagine, you know, taking a selfie and answering questions about what it means to be the Messiah, uh, instead of doing that, he goes off on the kind of tangent that only Jesus can go off on and people still pay attention. He starts talking about seeds falling to the ground. He goes on this rabbinic hyperbole about hating our lives and following him and trouble brewing in his soul. And there's no indication that he goes to meet these curious ones. You know, we don't know if the, these Greek folks ever got to see him. Instead, he answers his disciples with this reminder that he's not especially interested in curiosity. He's all about uh, cruciformity. <laughs> he's not interested in spiritual collectibles. He's interested in the way of the cross. He, he reminds them as he has time and again that the call isn't to ooh and ah at his miracles or at his holiness or to get caught up in the excitement of the crowds, but to travel in the will and way of God. He's not interested in being seen and talked about. He's calling people to follow him, to get in on a journey with him. Or to, to mix metaphors, as Jesus is wont to do, he's, he's calling people to get planted. You know, the image of uh, a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying in order to make uh, more wheat is one of the more familiar of Jesus' images. In fact, it's so familiar that I'm not sure I've always tended to it very well. Like, I'm just so used to it, I haven't thought about it much. And when I do think about it, I tend to focus on the, you know, uh, self-giving part, the dying for the sake of more. And I tend to jump pretty quickly to the more part because <laughs> I'm not big on the dying part. Uh, but this time around, you know, it seems, it seems more evocative. Like, like he's calling us out of spiritual tourism and into holy travail, which he makes clear is decidedly more compelling. He reminds his disciples that what he's gotten them into is no surface experience, but one so profound that it feels like an altogether new life. He's reminding them, he's reminding us that the invitation is not just to see Jesus, but to become like him, to have life in his name, or as St. Paul will say, to be rooted and grounded in love, a love that's not just making the world a little more interesting, like a souvenir on a shelf might do for a, an otherwise ordinary room, but a love that's transforming the world, that is altering the landscape entirely. Now, if a grain of wheat is going to do anything, it doesn't just land on the ground, it falls into the earth. It, it roots, it's nourished by the soil and the rain, warmed by the sun, and the result is nothing short of miraculous. You know, if we'd never seen it before, I, I don't think we would believe it. I don't think we would ever guess that a seed can do what a seed does. That something so small could contain so much life, that something so unexpected knew could shoot forth from something that looked so dead. 
You know, Kate's in the process of, of planting uh, seeds on our new balcony. We're very excited about a new balcony. <laughs> and some things have started to sprout already. You know, but the seeds that get planted, they're so inconsequential. They're so unassuming. And not to mention that dirt doesn't look altogether promising either. And yet somehow our hope is that with time and intention and some processes that seem nothing short of magical to me, someday we'll have tomatoes and peppers and all sorts of delicious and beautiful things. And of course, anyone who knows anything about gardening knows that it is no tourist activity. You know, gardening is a kind of traveling, I think. You, you can't be in it for the short term. If you want tomatoes today, you go to the grocery store and you get tomatoes. And... and You'll find something at least that resembles a tomato, right? It'll be the right color and the right shape, <laughs> but it, it won't be anything like a fresh tomato from the, from the garden. That's going to take time and intention. Now, as, as I think about Jesus' response in this passage, I have to wonder if part of the mixed bag of this past year is that so many of us have been forced to be travailers instead of tourists, and not just because we haven't been able to go anywhere. I don't want to glamorize what's been an incredibly difficult year for a whole lot of people. But I think that for lots of us, it's laid bare our propensity for hopping from one thing to the next. It's revealed how many of us lived frantic and distracted lives. And this year has undermined our habit of glorifying busyness and forced us to slow down, whether we like it or not. For, for many people, this has been a year of sometimes unsettling spaciousness. Who among us hasn't wondered at some point in the last 12 months what on earth we should do with ourselves today? Now, I, I think this has been a season of both obvious and significant challenge, but also a kind of surprising blessing. And, and I hope that as we prepare for the next season, we'll tend to what's been blessed. Because I think we're easily tempted towards distraction. We're drawn to the next thing. We're encouraged to be tourists, right? We're good at it. <laughs> it's better for the economy. Uh, we want as much as we can get a, a, as quickly and efficiently as possible. But as my friend Jason Biasi says, the Christian faith, the Christian life cannot be microwaved. It's not just a matter of, of seeing Jesus and getting what we want and moving on to the next thing. It's not a matter of catching a glimpse and hearing a word and carrying on as if nothing is new, because in the company of Jesus, everything is new. Which is not to say easier or slicker or with better lines and, and more efficiency as we tend to expect of new things. Jesus is clear that under the current order of things, his new way is, is a challenge. It can be laborious effort. It's, it's learning to travel the path that, that leads to life that is truly life instead of touring along the road that is simply living. It's not curiosity, but cruciformity. And as he prepares to take that path to its culmination, he's quick to say that his soul is troubled. And if you'll allow me a little bit of a sidebar, can we just acknowledge what a gift it is to know that Jesus' soul could be troubled? I think it's a marvelous thing to know that we don't have a Savior who's unacquainted with struggle and trial and trouble. We don't have a Savior who floats vaguely between heaven and earth, slightly above the ground, but ours is a Savior who is planted in the earth and raised up from it, who knows all of our woe and wonder, 
He knows pain and loneliness, abandonment and violence, sadness and suffering. And we are bold to say that somehow God is glorified, not in spite of that, but even from within it. Somehow ashes will be turned to beauty. And perhaps this is a reminder that the glory of God is no trifling thing. The glory of God is not something we seek out of curiosity or passing interest. It's not meant to sit on a shelf or in a drawer for when it's convenient or we're feeling nostalgic. It is instead the proper orientation of our whole lives. It's what we were made for here and now. I think one of the most staggering things that Jesus ever says is that we're not simply passive observers of God's glory, but we're invited right into it. In, in a scene uh, shortly after what we heard today, he's going to say that anyone who believes in him will not just know the right things, will not just watch and cheer what he does, but will do the things that he does and heaven help us even greater things. Not just seeing, but doing. And here I think we need to put on the brakes a little bit. <laughs> You know, because we can get ourselves in trouble at this point if we start to think about the Christian life as mostly what we do, about trying harder and doing more and travailing constantly. I mean, let's remember that this is the same Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to that again. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now when we take up with Jesus, what we find is, is that life with him is the end of one kind of travailing. You know, the kind of struggle for something that's decidedly less than life that is truly life. The kind of struggle that so many of us know or have known. Struggle for, for something less than we're made for. It, it, we leave that behind in exchange for traveling in a new direction. You know, life with Jesus is a reorientation to the will and way of God, a life of love and justice and righteousness instead of anything else and come what may. And come what may, because ours is the God who even raises the dead. You know, to travel with Jesus is, is to live knowing, as he says, that the ruler of this world, the, the ways and means of, uh, of principalities and powers and systems and structures that are opposed to love and justice and righteousness, the ruler of this world will be driven out. And not by us, but by the one who's making all things new. God is making a new possibility for us. God has made a new way for us to walk, a fresh path in the wilderness. We're not hacking our way through some impenetrable thing, but God has opened a broad space in front of us, and God is beckoning us into it. As King David will say in Psalm 18, uh, the Lord saved me because he loves me, and he set me in a broad space. And I, I want to pay attention to the fact that Jesus does not say, when I am lifted up from the earth, uh, everyone will, will figure out how to get to me. That's <laughs> not what he says. He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. This is not about us struggling our way to God, but God in Christ making his way 
to us, drawing near to us, giving everything to get at us so that we can be where he is. If we will travail for God's glory, and I think we're called to do it, we, we will not do it alone. We will not do it on our own strength, but we will do it with Jesus and in the power and wonder of his name. And you know, in the end, I think Jesus' unwillingness to be a tourist attraction is wildly good news for us. It's a reminder that he's not here to add a little spiritual flourish to our lives or an occasional break from the monotony of our everydays. Instead, he's calling us into a marvelous adventure. He's calling us to get in on what he is about with every confidence that we are made for it. We're made for it. He's calling us to remember that ours is the God who invites us to travel from one way to something altogether new. This is the God who called Abraham to set out for a brand new land, who walked with Israel in the wilderness as they learned to leave behind the yoke of slavery and put on their new identity as God's light for the world. This is the God who doesn't just slip in like other gods every once in a while for pleasure and plunder, but the one who chooses to be planted in it with us, to move into the neighborhood, to join us even if it costs him everything. This is the God willing to travel into even the most treacherous valleys with us, ahead of us, if it means leading us through to safety. And you know, the testimony of the saints in every generation is that it's only when we recognize that, recognize in Jesus how far God will go to be with us and for us, to call us into a new possibility, to carve for us a fresh path that we actually learn to see him well and seeing him to follow him into the way that leads to life, which is the hope of our lives and the hope of this world. So God, give us grace and guts.